Please be seated and turn with me. Hallelujah. Amen. Turn with me to, to Colossians 3, 9 through 17. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1592. 1592 and continuing on to 1593. 1592, continuing on to 1593. What chapter? Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 17. Listen now to the word of God. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we're going to look at, in a sense, an application of what we looked at last week with regard to proper worship. We're going to look at the application of this in terms of the singing of praise. The singing of praise. And indeed, we're going to be considering, there are many things we can say about the singing of praise, which we will not deal with today. Many interesting things, I trust enriching things we could note from Scripture. Today we're focusing in on a very particular question. And that is, why we sing psalms exclusively why we sing and indeed should sing psalms exclusively paul here in colossians 3 verse 16 instructs us regarding the content of worship song now let me be clear here the issue of worship song um, and its content is one on which genuine christians disagree Many godly people, many godly ministers, theologians, and so forth, have held to a different view. And so as we approach it, we should have a sense of humility, certainly, as we do that. 
There are two classic texts on the nature of worship song. The one that runs parallel to Colossians uh, 3.16, Ephesians 5.19, and even uh, verse 18, we filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. But today we're going to look at the parallel passage here in Colossians 3.19. Ephesians 5 emphasizes the spiritual, that is say the Holy Spirit character, capital S, the Holy Spirit character of song. Here in Colossians 3, we see the emphasis upon the word-based nature of worship song. These are not contradictory. Obviously, they complement each other. Now, last week, when we looked at worship, remember that we talked about S, uh, we, we talked about SDP, SDP. Worship is special, it is dialogical, and it is prescribed. It's special, it's different from the rest of life, and it is determined differently. Our Christian liberty with regard to whether we drive a red car or a green car, or put on a blue tie or a yellow tie or whatever. There's a lot of liberty that we have under Christ in terms of our life in general. But that's not true with regard to worship. Worship is different, and it's special, and it is, it is distinct. If everything is worship, then nothing is worship. But that's an important point to remember. Worship is special. Secondly, worship is dialogical. God speaks and man responds. This is a simple Sunday school concept. Children, who is speaking when the word of God is read? Why God is speaking. Do we also, Christ is speaking. Do we also hear Christ when the, in terms of the preaching of the word? Absolutely. But we, how do we respond? We respond in the praying of prayer and in the singing of praise. This is a simple Sunday school concept that unfortunately a number of theologians have been mistaken on. And then thirdly, it is prescribed. Remember I talked about what a prescription is? It's something that you that your, your doctor writes out in illegible handwriting and you take to the druggist in order to be filled. But unlike the prescription from a physician The prescription of scripture is not undecipherable. It is clear. Whatever is commanded is required. Whatever is not commanded is forbidden. Whatever is commanded is required. Whatever is not commanded is forbidden. This is often referred to as the RPW, the Regulative Principle of Worship. It's very simple. Whatever is commanded is required. Whatever is not commanded is forbidden. But please note, as we did last week, that we are referring not just to vague concepts like praise and instruction and so forth. No, we're talking about elements, parts of worship. And each element is distinct, like organs of a human body. So the elements of a, the, the organs of a human body are related to each other, obviously. They, they together form a body of worship, and yet you wouldn't want your surgeon operating on you if he didn't know the difference between the heart, the liver, and the lungs. 
They are distinct. Each one is a particular part, and each one, therefore, must be determined on its own basis, its own characteristics. Now, with regard to the singing of praise, then, as we look at this not only prescribed nature, but also this dialogical nature, we note that the singing of praise is directed to God. Now, when we pray, when someone leads in prayer, we hear the person pray, are we edified? Yes, we definitely are edified. And yet we don't pray to each other. We are edified as we hear someone lifting up prayer to God. Prayer is a means of grace. But we don't pray to each other. We don't determine the content of prayer based upon the fact that it can edify. And the same thing is true with regard to the singing of praise. We do not determine the content of worship song based on the fact, well, it edifies this particular whatever. Oh, a particular song, this, this, is, this edifies, this builds me up, this instructs us. Well, remember again, in the singing of praise, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to praise God. And therefore, although, there, although when we praise God and praise Him properly, we're going to be edified, we don't determine the content based upon that edification. We, again, we don't determine the content of worship song based on its effect on us. And the final point I want to make by way of introduction is this. Do not overcomplicate matters. Don't over- overcomplicate this. Most truth is simple. Now, we're talking about deep things, to be sure. We're swimming, in a sense, in the deep end of the pool. At the same time, it's not that hard to understand. It really isn't. And let me just say that if you grab hold of this doctrine, if you grab hold of what we're talking about today, you will know more, dare I say, than many ministers and theologians today who often try to look for loopholes and try to explain away the obvious. So let's look then, first of all, as the first major point, at the content of worship song, based here on Colossians 3, verse 16. Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The first thing I would draw your attention to is the idea of dwelling in you. Dwelling in you. This is a reference to something divine. You don't talk about something that is man-made dwelling in you. Um, the, um, also, even, even the adverb richly, we are reminded there of the riches that are found in Christ. But what is to dwell in you? It is the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Notice it does not say the word about Christ. It says the word of Christ. The word that is generated by Christ and his Holy Spirit. That's the word. And therefore, what follows in terms of the psalms and hymns and songs which are spiritual have to be a subset of the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. It is that which is hidden in and written upon our hearts. 
Children, I will not have you recite it, but I know that you could if I had asked you to. Namely, Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. It's written upon the heart. It dwells within us. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people doesn't say I will write systematic theology upon their hearts. And so here then we find that the word of Christ, or we could even say the word of God, dwell in you richly. Furthermore, it says, in all wisdom. From whence does wisdom come? James 1 tells us truly. It comes from above. Again, this is pointing to the fact that this is something that comes directly from God. The word of Christ then is equal to the word of God. It has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the way that that word dwells in us here in Colossians 3 is by means of the Psalms. That is to say, those songs that are part of that word. Which leads us then to the next phrase, Psalms and hymns and songs which are spiritual. Notice how I said that. Psalms and hymns and songs which are spiritual. Um, it is very likely that that, uh, that that word spiritual modifies all three nouns. Psalms and hymns and songs all together which are spiritual. It comes back and modifies all three nouns. Well, this word, spiritual, pneumatikos, does not mean religious or devotional. And it doesn't say that we are to write devotional literature. It says that the songs themselves are to be spiritual. That is to say, driven by and energized by the Holy Spirit. Now, you find in a number of places throughout Scripture the connection between prophesying and uh, worship song or the work of the Holy Spirit and worship song. In 2 Samuel 23, 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. This is a reference, therefore, to the Holy Spirit. And that's what we find here in Colossians 3. So the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, whatever these songs are, they have this characteristic of being of being spirit-filled, inspired, if you will. But then let's look at these three words, psalmos, humnos, and ode, psalms, hymns, and songs. Now, one of the ways that people look at these today is they say, well, these are three terms. Psalms must mean, most folks would say, from the Bible. Hymns, they would say, well, we're looking at Amazing Grace and some of the great classic hymns, if you will, and spiritual songs, those are sort of your choruses. 
But that's not the way the Bible interprets these phrases. And one of the ways you know this is by looking in the titles of the Psalms, and particularly the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. When you look at the titles of the Psalms in the Greek, which is the Bible that would have been, that the people in Colossae would have been familiar with, you see that the, there are three terms that are used in the titles in the Greek. Psalmos, humnos, and oday. Psalms, hymns, and songs. All of these then referring to the Psalter. You might ask, why should there be three terms if it's all the Psalms? Well, that's a good question. But actually, if you think about it just for a second, there are all kinds of other places in Scripture where you find the same threefold approach. Deuteronomy 30, verse 16, to walk in his ways, uh, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. Commandments, statutes, and judgments. They're all the commandments of God. They're not different in that regard, but it's a threefold way. There may be some nuanced difference, but basically it's all referring to the same thing. Um, uh, we find in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, these are all very very similar terms, are they not? But they're piled up in Scripture in order to emphasize it, as well as being a poetic uh, expression. So by way of overview, then, we know that the phrase here in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, psalms and hymns and songs which are spiritual, we know that phrase unquestionably does refer to inspired songs. We know also that it specifically refers to those of the Psalter. And here's the critical point. We have no evidence that anything else was intended. Remember the regulatory principle. If it's commanded, it is required. If it is not commanded, it is forbidden. You, if you have a choice of going over a bridge, and one is, is like that bridge up in Philadelphia that collapsed recently. And the other one you know is, is fine and sound. Which one are you going to travel over? Which one are you going to take your family over? So we have no evidence that anything else was intended. Now, let's also then, secondly, having looked at this particular text, let's look at other evidence. And the first point I want to make here is that the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is the hymn book of the covenant community. It is the book of praises. This is seen, of course, by its content, which is filled with praise. We furthermore can note the various musical notations in it. Selah. Remember, you, you come and you're reading in a psalm, you suddenly come across Selah. It means pause. It's, it's like an, an interlude, like a musical interlude. Or we also find to the chief musician or to the choir director many times in the titles of the psalm, showing that they were intended to be sung. 
We even have names. We don't have the tunes themselves, but we have names of tunes. Now today, uh, well, let me just say, when you look in your Psalter, I'm sure that you've seen up on the um, on the right corner, the, above the music, you'll see the name of a tune, like Converse or New Britain or whatever it may happen to be, Old Hundred. So we have names for the titles of the tunes that we use. Well, back in the Old Testament, there were a number of tunes as well, so as to give instruction as to which tunes to use. And so the Psalter then has been given to us It has been given to the covenant community. When a man gives his bride a pearl bracelet on their wedding day, she doesn't have to ask him what she's supposed to do with it. She wears it proudly, and she doesn't let anything else compete with it. Why, then, do we sing from the Psalter? Because It's there. It exists. God sovereignly collected its songs for our use. So, the Psalter is the hymn book of the covenant community. Secondly, the Psalter is the only hymn book without error, particularly, that is to say, without theological heresy. One of my friends who passed away a number of years ago is a man by the name of Louis DeBoer who wrote an interesting book called Hymns, Heretics, and History. Hymns, Heretics, and History. And he pointed out in there a number of things, including the fact, for example, that the Council of Laodicea, this is a church meeting, like a synod or general assembly meeting, the Council of Laodicea in 360, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the Council of Braga in 563, prohibited uninspired hymns. Furthermore, the earliest hymns were written by Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, Gnostics, strange term, they were strange people, they were strange heretics, denying the incarnation of Christ. The earliest songs Uh, in a church context were written by Gnostics. In the 300s, a man by the name of Arius, A-R-I-U-S, who was a heretic, he denied the deity of Christ. He came up with a little jingle, there was a time when the Son was not, the Son of God was not, denying the deity of Jesus. I could also point then to Isaac Watts, very familiar hymn writer, the father of English hymnody about 300 years ago, who attacked the Bible and called things in the Psalms, listen to me carefully, called them, quote, sub-Christian, beneath the dignity of Christ and the dignity of Christians. That's, uh, that's the view of Isaac Watts. That's why he came up with his hymns. He questioned as well, he also questioned the Trinity. There were Unitarians who have written hymns, Nearer My God to Thee, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, perhaps most notoriously the battle hymn of the Republic. There are Romanists who have written hymns, such as Faith of Our Fathers, which was a prayer to the Virgin Mary to restore Catholicism to England. 
You see, when you sing these songs written by heretics, either you are singing them with the same meaning as intended, or you are changing what the author intended by them. But my friends, you can sing the Psalms without fear of praising God wrongly. You know, it's interesting that there is an impact as well that songs will have on those who sing them and listen to them. It has been said that whoever writes a society's songs will exercise dominion over it. One person at least has said, let me make the songs of a nation and I care not who writes his laws. And there is thus a harmful even though perhaps subtle effect on the church when you sing things that are written by heretics. Thirdly, not only do we see the Psalter as the hymn book of the covenant community and uh, and that it is the only hymn book without error, but thirdly, the Psalter is the only hymn book that has the seal of the approval of God. God sovereignly brought together this collection of songs for the church to use. No other hymn book has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. None. There is no example in Scripture of uninspired worship song and no command to compose one. And let me also make this point. The Psalter is completely adequate We don't need to add to it. We do not need to add to the Psalter. It was good enough for the apostles. It was good enough for Jesus. It should be good enough for us. And fourthly then, in this regard, only the Psalter has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Only the Psalter has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We read today from Luke chapter 24. And in verse 44, he says, Jesus, after his resurrection, says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. My friends, Jesus is the one who came in human flesh to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. He is the one who sang the Psalms for us on the night in which he was betrayed. He sang from the Psalter, including from Psalm 118, singing about his own death. But he sang all of the Psalms for us, for you and for me, because we are imperfect even when we try to offer this worship to God. We need Jesus. Because we are sinners, we need his righteousness. We need to stand in him. We are in Christ. He sang these songs for us. And my friends, he still sings them in heaven. My friends, we are to join him in singing these songs. Not expect that he is to join us in singing songs of our own devising. You often will hear um, it said in a church service, Jesus is, is singing in the midst of the brethren. That is correct. But what is he singing? He's not singing our hymns. 
he's not singing the songs of heretics. He is singing, rather, his own songs. Indeed, the Psalms are a completely different genre. They're completely, they are different from any man-made song. The Psalms breathe of Jesus and portray him in ways that man-made hymns cannot do. We think of all the messianic psalms, Psalm 2 in terms of the kingship of Christ, Psalm 22, the, the psalm of the cross, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 24, lift up your gates as the king enters in, Psalm 45, uh, the, the, the Lord Jesus as the warrior who is also the bridegroom, Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool, the messianic psalms. We see in the Psalms the great offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king portrayed in ways that human poetry cannot do. We see him portrayed as the one who is the redeemer, who is the rock. And my friends, we therefore are to sing in Christ, in union with him, in celebration of the redemption that has been accomplished and applied. And let me also add here, this is true in terms of our sanctification as well. So we see a number of things portrayed in terms of Jesus, in terms of his prophet being prophet, priest, and king, and savior. But we also hear in the Psalms, do we not? We hear, we see the struggle, the spiritual struggle that we have. We understand the the doctrine of sanctification. And as we sing in uh, in those ways, we we recognize the fact that Jesus is the one who gave his law. We are celebrating that. We are praising him for his law that is written upon our hearts. We are praising him as faith and repentance are worked in us. As, he, as Jesus goes with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we're praising him and we are singing in Christ. And my friends, no human composition can match that. Let me put it this way. The Psalms are blood-stained. For Jesus' sacrifice was necessary to fulfill them. Let me tell you a story. It's a story of of a young man who's going off to war. And uh, he he gets on board the train, waves goodbye to his young wife, goes off to battle. And he's seriously wounded. He's dying in the hospital. He writes to her about his love for her. He writes perhaps about his exploits, how the some of the things he was able to do and experience. And then he dies. Two weeks later, Here comes 
a knock on the door. Two army officers to tell his wife that he is not coming back. They convey a letter from the President of the United States talking about what a great hero he was, celebrating that. And they also they also at the same time give her that blood-stained letter which is going to be more precious. Indeed, would it not be insulting and disrespectful to suggest that a letter about him is the same as a letter by him, of him. So only the Psalter has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ and no human composition, even if it's orthodox, cannot compare. Now, we could answer various objections. Sometimes we're, we hear things like, well, we're just told, um, the Bible just tells us to sing praise, but in a number of places, but in a number of places doesn't tell us which songs to use. If we, if we got a, um, a pickup game of softball, and uh, so we're ready to play, and the umpire says, play ball, and all of a sudden the pitcher throws a uh, throws a football across home plate or a volleyball. Well, you didn't tell me what kind of ball to use, right? Well, it's the same thing here, my friends. Wouldn't it be strange if the if in terms of uh, a pickup softball game that it would be more regulated than the worship of God? Or we are also told, and this may be a question that you have, we're told in Scripture to sing new songs. We'll be singing Psalm 149 this evening, for example, the new song, implying songs newly written. But we need to realize that when the Bible uses the word new, when the Bible uses the word new, well, think about it. New heavens, new earth, new covenant, new testament, new heart, new man new life, new Jerusalem. All those things that are new don't refer to what man does. They refer to what the Spirit does in his renewing and refreshing power. Now, there are many other objections. Maybe, you have, maybe you're aware of some. And by the way, I'd be very happy to talk with any of you all about these afterwards. And let me just say and I don't mean to brag by saying this, but I've been looking at this issue for almost half a century. I've been looking seriously at this issue for 46 years. And I think I've heard every possible objection. And the point I want to make here is that it is inevitable that at some point in the argument by churchmen and theologians, at some point, there's a subtle switch from why to why not. Instead of a thus says the Lord, it becomes why can't we? Now those of y'all that have children know it's easy 
for your children to why not you to death, right? Well, why not, Mommy? Why not, Daddy? And so forth. But in point of fact, my friends, there is at some point a subtle switch from why, which is that of command, Bible-based, to why not, that is rationalistic. Well, I have three points in conclusion. The first is this, to emphasize again, there is no proof for singing uninspired worship songs. It simply is not there. Never been proven. One of our sister denominations, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, 1947, considered the matter. And uh, the author of the report that was adopted, Robert Marsden, later admitted in a magazine article that it was not proven in terms of worship song being uninspired. And I would suggest that with that admission, the jig is up. But certainly there is no proof, none, for singing uninspired worship songs. There is speculation. There is no proof. But secondly, be humble. Be humble with regard to this matter. This is not a matter of pride. I can think of a number of very godly churchmen whom I greatly respect and who are far more pious than I who disagree with what you have heard today. I have complete respect and love for such people who maintain the gospel and are far more godly than I am, I am sure. So be humble with regard to this matter. But secondly, my friends, sing praise to God in Christ. Sing praise to God in Christ. Treasure the presence of Christ in the Psalms. It's like a blood-stained letter. Sing joyously these praises to God in accordance with his command. And do so by faith in him, singing with him, joining with him, with him in the singing of praise. Psalm 47, 5 and 6. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And so, our Father, we thank Thee for the work of the Lord Jesus, and we thank Thee for the work of His Holy Spirit. And we pray, O oh God, that we would learn evermore to sing praises and to sing praises with understanding, knowing that we are joining with King Jesus himself, knowing that we are celebrating his work in our lives, redemption accomplished and applied. And so, O oh God, be pleased to do that in our lives and be pleased, O oh Lord, to sweep away all of the inappropriate worship 
in the church worldwide. Be pleased, O Lord, to do so for the glory and honor of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.